the lost days. The story of survival in the zombie apocalypse. Hi there, my name is Maria. I am an artificial intelligence specially designed and built by CPR, an organization that was founded in the year 2125, after the height of the zombie apocalypse. We are the Center for Preservation and Reclamation. My mandate is the parsing and dissemination of historical records from what is now known as the lost days of humanity. I will be bringing you individual accounts of survivors from the past 100 years in the hopes that this history will not repeat itself. Entry number eight. As I drove to work on what I expected would be just another tedious day, I felt a strange mix of emotions. My familiarity with the route was comforting, but my anxiety was growing with each passing mile. I had been working at the same thankless job for the past couple of years, and was just about fed up with listening to countless patients tell me about their week-long bouts of diarrhea. And yet, here I was, still stuck in the same old routine. To make matters worse... I was cursed with a few lazy co-workers who seemed to fall ill and call in sick at least twice a month, and leaving the devoted, stupid employees struggling to stay afloat. A sense of despair loomed over me as I steered my bright red Nissan Juke onto the highway. With my Pandora Kate Bush station playing in the background, I drove the final few miles to work, uncertain what lay ahead. Now, before I dive too far into my story... Let me first take a detour and talk about the patients with the aforementioned digestive tract issues. Working at a doctor's office, you wouldn't believe how oblivious some people are when it comes to their health. They call in with minor problems for which they would rather pay an $80 copayment than try to resolve the issue themselves. Every time someone calls complaining of complications with diarrhea, my first question is always, have you taken anything to help with the symptoms? Have you tried Pepto? Or maybe Imodium? Shockingly enough, nine times out of ten they say no, and I have to bite my tongue before responding with something along the lines of, well, that's pretty stupid. I hope you shit yourself next time. But anyways, enough about those days working as a medical assistant. I have a whole new set of problems on my hands nowadays. Now, where was I? Oh yeah, driving to work. I sped toward my work, and I was stopped at a red light in a school zone, when a tense confrontation caught my attention. A child of no more than ten years shrieked in rage and charged the crossing guard, who couldn't help but back away with his hands held out in an attempt to quell the kid's fury. The two toppled to the ground, the boy's small fist pummeling the older man's chest as the pair struggled. Regardless of their size difference, the man seemed to be having a bit of trouble getting the child under control until another crossing attendant came running to render assistance, eventually subduing the tyke. Before I could reach my phone to record the altercation, the car behind me honked furiously, stapping me from my trance, and I realized that the light had turned green. I jammed on the gas and continued on my way to work, chalking it all up to just the start of a bad day. A few minutes later, I pulled into the parking garage, 
my gas gauge barely hovering above empty, exiting my car and casually strolling into the office at 7.45, 15 minutes later than my designated time to start. I had long ago stopped attempting to make it to work on time, deciding that the company owed me that 15 minutes self-approved grace period for covering as many shifts as I have for the irresponsible co-workers I had mentioned before. Regardless of the work stress and drama I knew I'd have to endure for the next nine hours, I nonetheless greeted everyone with the morning salutation and a smile. All things considered, I do make an attempt every day to start off with an enlightened state of mind. My current good mood lasted for all of ten minutes, completely deteriorating after I switched on my computer and learned that once again an employee had called in and I have had to yet again cover another doctor's clinic. That bitch! I fumed to Lydia, one of my co-workers I share a workspace with. Can you believe she called in again? Are you really that surprised? Lydia replied to me, pursing her lips while shaking her head side to side. Hell, she was leading up to it all day yesterday with all that fake sniffling and forced coughing. With one last incoherent grumble, I resigned myself to my fate and did my very best to find my way back to my happy place. At least I only have to cover the first half of the day. With the physician that I normally work with being away doing procedures, at least my afternoon would be free, hopefully. Holding the door open, I called into the waiting room for the first patient of the morning. She was an older, petite woman and took her good sweet time rising from the chair she was in and shuffled her way over to me. Sure, the walker may have hampered her ability to move at more than a snail's pace, but that's not my fault, now is it? I took her vitals, starting with blood pressure and weight, after which I inquired her height, to which I promptly received an answer of 4 feet 11 inches, followed by the same lame-ass joke I hear at least 10 times a day. The older I get, the shorter I get. That's what everyone keeps telling me, I replied with a forced smile. Follow me, please, I requested, slowly leading her back to the exam room. The rest of the morning was the same as the mundane morning before. Get vitals, room, patient, schedule, procedure, go over instructions, fill out order, fax order, file order, and repeat. With an occasional request for a physician to instruct patients on where to go for lab work or to request medical records all while trying to intercept incoming calls, yada yada yada. The morning seemed to crawl by at a glacial pace, not unlike the little old lady in exam room number one. At around 11 a.m., a sickening scream that startled everyone in the office pierced the air, followed by an unbearable screeching sound and then the metallic clattering of metal crashing against metal. Horrified, my co-workers and I rushed to our fifth-story window for a better view. Cascades of black smoke billow up from the scene below, where a fatal car crash had occurred. My eyes widened upon seeing the huge blood smear spread across the road below, and my heart sank further as I noticed severed body parts scattered across the street. I scanned the road to see a woman's crushed and bloodied skull resting against the curb. A broken arm with twitching fingers lay not far from it. My stomach churned, and I gasped for a breath of air before quickly averting my gaze from the grisly scene. It's crazy how I can watch the most disturbing and disgusting movies, read the most vile and depraved books, but when it comes to seeing it in real life, I'm a bit of a pussy.
Little did I know that the accident was just a prelude to an even greater horror that I'd be witnessing in the next couple weeks. The office was abuzz with the noise of 25 women and myself all speaking at the same time. Suddenly, everyone's cell phones buzzing simultaneously. I nervously checked my phone, expecting to see an Amber Alert. Instead, I was shocked to see an emergency message from the city of Houston advertising all people to get off the roads immediately and return to their homes. Whoa, what the hell is this? Is this for real? I asked, holding up my phone so Megan could see the incoming emergency alert. She squinted at the screen and a look of confusion washed over her face. Megan quickly pulled out her phone to find the same message plastered across her screen. What the hell is going on? Megan asked me, anxiety evident on her face. I don't know, but I'm not about to ignore it, I answered. As I began making my way over to the administrative assistant's office, as I peered into the room, Irene was staring intently at her cell phone with a look of distress on her face. Her skin was pale and clammy as she raised her eyes from the device. After discussing it for a while, we decided it was best to shut the office down and all head home for the day. Twenty minutes later, I was on the road and on my way home with a growing sense of dread for company. The radio played an eerie soundtrack as the announcer spoke ominously about the state of emergency. He prattled on, providing splotchy details about the outbreak in multiple cities across the United States, citing violence and erratic behavior in those affected. He went on to say that the cause of the outbreak, as well as the route of transmission, was still under investigation. Government officials were advising that all individuals get off the streets as soon as possible and to remain inside until further information was available. I phoned Sean, my partner of 22 years, as I drove the back streets through my neighborhood in an effort to avoid the accident, as well as the increasing traffic on the main road. He picked up after a few rings. I asked him if he saw the message, and he said he did, and I told him I was on my way home and that I would see him in a few minutes. After we hung up, I called my sister to tell her what happened. She picked up on the very first ring. She was with my father, and as I drove, we exchanged anxious words. The gauge on my poor car had dipped below the empty mark. Though anxious to refuel, I knew that the line at the station would slow me down, and every second I wasted was a step further from getting home. I reached my driveway just as the car began to sputter. Luckily enough, we had two other vehicles that were fully gassed up. As soon as I made it safely inside, I told my dad and sister that I would call them once Sean had made it home safely. We hesitantly said our goodbyes, after which I raced to change out of my scrubs into a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. I attempted to reach out to Sean once again, but every time I called, I received a message saying the lines were busy and asking me to try the call again. I stumbled into the guest bedroom, feeling overwhelmed and not quite sure of what to do. I opened the window that was directly above the garage and turned on the TV. That only served to spin my mind further out of control. Every channel seemed to be abuzz with the news of this mysterious outbreak, but no one had any real answers. I attempted to call Sean several times with no success, something that only added to my anxiety. Eventually I collapsed onto the bed in exhaustion and quickly drifted off despite my unease. A few hours later I heard a loud noise from outside. This meant Sean was home. My heart raced as I sprang out of bed and rushed over to the window, anxiously pulling up the blinds just in time to see him getting out of his SUV and distractedly searching for something in the back of it. Now everything would be okay. I called down to him to come inside, just as my next door neighbor's garage began to open. 
A man came running out and crashed into Sean, causing them both to spiral down into a chaotic mess of arms and legs. A second man, covered in blood, emerged from the garage after him. He growled like a wild beast as he charged toward both men. His teeth bared and a crazed look in his bloodshot eyes. He leapt onto the two men and sunk his sharp teeth into their flesh. My lungs burned in protest as I screamed for him to stop, pleas that echoed in tandem with Sean's desperate cries for help. My heart broke to hear the fearful and panicked cries for help from a man I grew to love over the past 22 years. Someone who is more than just a lover, but friend, companion, and family. I was about to run down the stairs to help Sean when a second person came out of the garage, looking just the same as the first. This woman had the same crazed look on her face and began attacking the two men. The commotion caught the attention of another neighbor, who I failed to notice moving down the long driveway which ran parallel to the back side of our townhouse. It was an intimidating figure coming into view beneath the evening sky with the broad shoulders and bulging muscles hidden only slightly by the wife-beater t-shirt he always wore. The muscle-bound neighbor who owned a private gym down the road grabbed the first attacker and threw it off of Sean. In doing so, he lost his balance, leaving an opening for another to come around the corner and attack him. They tore bits and pieces of flesh and muscle from his bones and left him bleeding in a heap on the ground. Screams of agony could be heard filling the air as the wild beast-like creatures shook their heads side to side, their eyes bloodshot red, baring their teeth at Sean. My heart stopped as my gaze met Sean's in the mangled mess of bodies below. His eyes filled with terror and desperation, pleading for me to stay put. With my feet glued to the ground, I screamed his name, begging him to cling on for just a few more seconds. He yelled back to me, his voice raw with emotion, telling me to stay inside. You can't help me now. The final words he spoke, I love you, brought tears to my eyes. He was right. The danger outside was too real. I shouted back to him that I loved him as well. As much as I wanted to, I couldn't bring myself to turn away. I watched as my neighbors greedily sank their teeth into Sean's flesh. Skin ripped and tore, blood flew into the air with every bite, and with each passing second, they seemed to be getting hungrier. My heart felt like it was being torn apart, and a steady stream of tears trailed down my face as I watched the people who I had once called friends consume the only man I've ever loved. In disbelief, I watched until it became too much to bear, and then finally shut the window, in an attempt to block out the grisly scene. In a daze, I shambled out of the guest room, feeling my way down the hall. My hands trembled as I opened the door to the main bedroom and spotted my man bag on the bed. Snatching up my phone, I swiped at the screen with shaking fingers, waiting for what seemed like an eternity before finally dialing 911. Not that I thought they would have arrived in time to prevent Sean from being killed. No surprise, the line was busy. I disconnected the call and tried again. Still busy. I tried calling my sister and my father. Their lines were busy as well. My grip tightened around the phone while my heart pounded like a bass drum. I buried my face in the pillow and screamed at the top of my lungs. A flood of tears stained the linens as they poured from my eyes. I didn't know what more I could do. Shock thundered through me in waves, and my mind felt like it was trapped inside a pinball machine, ricocheting between denial that any of this was happening to anger that these things had taken Sean away from me. My heart ached at the loss of my partner, and I was mentally, emotionally, and physically drained. 
My eyes grew heavier with each passing second and each cascading tear. I fought against the encroaching darkness of slumber, fearful that the people, no, not people, what my neighbors and possibly others had become were no longer human, fearful that the zombies might find a way into my home, but also knew that the garage was securely sealed and reasonably sure that the bars on the downstairs window and front door would prevent these things from getting inside. As I drifted off to what was sure to be a nightmare-fueled sleep, I thought about my sister and my dad. We had always said that if some type of emergency situation arose and we were unable to make contact with one another, that we would plan to meet at a rest area near the Lone Star Sculpture on Interstate Highway 10, near the Louisiana-Texas state line, which is exactly what I planned to do. For now, I need sleep. In the morning, I'd pack up the other car and take my chances on the open road. I survived today, but tomorrow will be the beginning of another story. The preceding audio recording was taken from a folder marked When It All Started A on the hard drive of a computer found in an old office building in the southern United States of America. Entry number nine. I don't know how long it's been since the world turned upside down. After a while, you sort of kind of lose track. At the start, seeing these zombies was terrifying. Shocking. Now we're getting used to seeing them around. Don't get me wrong. Encounter a horde of these assholes and you'll still be scared shitless, but on their own, they're pretty easy to dispatch. Easiest way is a knife to the temple, up close and personal, you know. A knife is best because it doesn't run out of ammo. It also doesn't attract other zombies with the sound. When it all went to shit, I ran. I was fortunate enough to have no one back home, no one I had to try and protect. My parents died some year before. And I never met anyone to start a romantic relationship with, so getting out of Dodge was easy. I hurriedly packed some essentials, food, clothes, water, into a backpack and got the hell out of there. It was carnage out there. My town had been invaded by one of these hordes, probably about 300 asshole zombies swooping in. Some people, the smart ones, ran away as soon as they saw them. Others wanted to fight, and they were doing okay until they weren't. They picked off a few zombies from the front of the pack, but were soon swallowed into the midst of them. The screams were horrible. I'll never forget that sound. The horde ripped through the entire town, consuming any flesh it found on its way, be it human or animal. They didn't care. They just wanted to feed. It was like they had an insatiable hunger, and we were their all-you-can-eat buffet. I decided to catch up with some of those other folks who ran. There were twelve of us in all, ten adults and two kids. We headed west following an abandoned rail line. We pulled what little food and water we had together and rationed them out, but it was clear it was only going to last a couple days at least. We needed to find food if we were going to have any chance of survival. After the rations ran out, we had some good days. I remember the day we ventured off the railway line into a small town and took a chance at an abandoned ice cream parlor. The power at this point was still running. 
We cautiously entered the building, checking for any bloodshot eyes coming out of the darkness. Jim, one of the other guys, threw a large stone inside to see if anything stirred. We were good. We went in, turned the lights on, and checked the freezer, and boy, we looked out. It was full. Chocolate chip, vanilla, caramel fudge, cookie dough, you name it, it was there. We took out a couple gallon tubs and found some waffle cones in the dry store. It wasn't a proper meal by any stretch, but it tasted sweet and sugary and reminded us all of a better time before the world collapsed. And my God, did the kids enjoy them. After everything they've witnessed, a little normality for them was great. Not every day was like that. As we headed further west and the cities and towns came less and less frequently, food was harder to come by. Some days we got by on forged berries, others by trying to hunt, something that none of us were that great at in the early days. We managed to catch the occasional rabbit in homemade traps, but sometimes had to cope with squirrel. The days we managed to catch anything bigger were very good days, but few and far between. If it wasn't food we were struggling with, it was the zombies themselves. A few months into our journey, we experienced our first loss as a group when we were cut off by a pack of them. We did the best we could, but we were outnumbered. We cleared most of them, but we lost two of our own in the process. Losing people is never nice, but in this world, sadly, it's going to happen. We took some time to bury our dead, making sure to stick a knife in their temples as respectfully as possible beforehand to make sure they didn't turn. We wanted them to not have to suffer that indignity. We lit a fire and camped out for the night. We continued our journey west. We walked for, I don't know, must have been a week, taking breaks whenever we could, and eventually came across a big farm. Milner's Farm, it was called. It was clear that the Milners were no longer home. It seemed a good space, one that could be fortified with land that could be cultivated. I think it was originally for cattle, but we could easily convert those fields into something for us to grow food. And that's what we did. We found some seeds in one of the sheds and started planting some carrots, potatoes, tomatoes. That's all we could find, but it got us started. We worked hard building tall fences and traps outside the perimeter to keep the zombies at bay. They mostly work well, but we do occasionally find ourselves having to secure weak spots where the odd zombie has slipped through. We've been staying here ever since. We've built a bit of a community here now. A few more people joined us recently who stumbled across the place like we did, though you have to be careful who to trust. Some people want help, sanctuary, and are willing to work to be a part of what we've built. Others just want what we have and want to take it off us by force. Thankfully, we've more good folk than bad come here, and we're building something good. We managed to get an old truck that we found in a barn started along with a generator for electric. We've built a reserve of food and supplies that we've got from trips into towns not too far away. Alex and Troy, the two kids we originally brought with us, have been joined by a few more folk their age, which is great for them. It's so good to see them being kids and not always having to deal with the reality of this shit show. Tonight 
It's my turn on watch, so I'm here in our makeshift watchtower. It's a quiet night. Sometimes I sit here in moments of contemplation thinking about the future. If there even is a future, is a post-post-apocalypse possible? Is there an afterwood to this story? If zombies straight up died tomorrow, where do we start picking up the pieces of civilization? Build new governments, new buildings, new infrastructure. How do we go about that? How can society rise from the ashes like a phoenix from a flame? These questions are far too big and complex for a mere man like me to answer, but I'd sure like to be on the team responsible for doing so. I believe humanity could have a second chance. That this might not be the end of our story. It could be a chance for us to start again and learn from the mistakes of the past and rebuild a new and better world together. Or, I guess we die trying. The preceding audio was recovered from a badly damaged tablet hidden beneath heavy foliage in a former police precinct in New York State along with the skeletal remains of a male believed to be the one who made the recording. Entry number eight was written by Roland Berkstein and recorded by Ian Daniel. Entry number nine was recorded by Juno Down. The theme music was written and recorded by Tony Lind at Tonescape Music. You can follow him at Instagram.com forward slash T-O-N-E-S-K-A-P-E. If you or someone you know have a story about survival in the zombie apocalypse, we'd love to hear it. Head on over to our website at thelostdays.com.